Hello, welcome to Reading Christian Texts. Today we're going to be reading from the Apology of St. John of Damascus against those who decry holy images. This text is very long, and so I will of course not be reading all of it, but I'll read some choice sections of it, um, starting at the very beginning. With the ever-present conviction of my own unworthiness, I ought to have kept silence and confessed my shortcomings before God, but all things are good at the right time. I see the church which God founded on the apostles and prophets, his cornerstone being Christ his Son, tossed on an angry sea, beaten by rushing waves, shaken and troubled by the assaults of evil spirits. I see rents in the seamless robe of Christ, which impious men have sought to part asunder, and his body cut into pieces, that is, the word of God and the ancient tradition of the church. Therefore I have judged it unreasonable to keep silence and to hold my tongue, bearing in mind the scripture warning, If thou withdrawest thyself, my soul shall not delight in thee. And if thou seest the sword coming, and dost not warn thy brother, I shall require his blood at thy hand. Fear then, compelled me to speak. The truth was stronger than the majesty of kings. I bore testimony to thee before kings, I heard the royal David saying, and I was not ashamed. No, I was the more incited to speak. The king's command is all-powerful over his subjects. Few men have hitherto been found who, whilst recognizing the power of the earthly king to come from above, have resisted his unlawful demands. A little bit lower on this page, he shares a short prayer, which I will read. In the first place, then, before speaking to you, I beseech Almighty God, to whom all things lie open, who knows my small capacity and my genuine intention to bless the words of my mouth and to enable me to bridle my mind and direct it to him, to walk in his presence straightly, not declining to a plausible right hand nor knowing the left. Then I ask all God's people, the chosen ones of his royal priesthood, that the holy shepherd of Christ's orthodox flock who represents in his own person Christ's priesthood to receive my treatise with kindness. They must not dwell on my unworthiness, nor seek for eloquence, for I am only too conscious of my shortcomings. They must consider the thoughts themselves. The kingdom of heaven is not in word, but in deed. Conquest is not my object. I raise a hand which is fighting for the truth, a willing hand under the divine guidance. Relying then upon substantial truth as my auxiliary, I will enter on my subject matter. Let's see. And then here's a short section on worship. After he makes a short confession of orthodox faith, he says this. I do not adore creation more than the creator, but I adore the creature created as I am adopting creation freely and spontaneously that he might elevate our nature and make us partakers of his divine nature. Together with my Lord and King, I worship him clothed in the flesh, not as if it were a garment or he constituted a fourth person of the Trinity, God forbid. That flesh is divine and endures after its assumption. Human nature was not lost in the Godhead. But just as the word made flesh remained the word, so flesh became the word remaining flesh, becoming rather one with the word through union. 
Therefore I venture to draw an image of the invisible God, not as invisible, but as having become visible for our sakes through flesh and blood. I do not draw an image of the immortal Godhead. I paint the visible flesh of God, for it is impossible to represent a spirit. How much more God who gives breath to the spirit. Let's see. And now, John of Damascus will address the Old Testament commandments not to make graven images. You see, the one thing to be aimed at is not to adore a created thing more than the Creator, nor to give the worship of Latria except to Him alone. By worship, consequently, He always understands the worship of Latria. For again, He says, Thou shalt not have strange gods other than me. Thou shalt not make to thyself a graven image, nor any similitude. Thou shalt not adore them. Then thou shalt not serve them, for I am the Lord thy God. And again, overthrow their altars and break down their statues. Burn their groves with fire and break their idols in pieces, for thou shalt not adore a strange God. And a little further on, thou shalt not make to thyself gods of metal, You see that he forbids image-making on account of idolatry, and that it is impossible to make an image of the immeasurable, uncircumscribed, invisible God. You have not seen the likeness of him, the scripture says, and this was St. Paul's testimony as he stood in the midst of the Areopagus. Being therefore the offspring of God, we must not suppose the divinity to be like unto gold, or silver, or stone, the graving of art and device of man." These injunctions were given to the Jews on account of their proneness to idolatry. Now we, on the contrary, are no longer in leading strings. Speaking theologically, it is given to us to avoid superstitious error, to be with God in the knowledge of the truth, to worship God alone, to enjoy the fullness of his knowledge. We have passed the stage of infancy and reached the perfection of manhood. We receive our habit of mind from God and know what may be imaged and what may not. The scripture says, you have not seen the likeness of him. What wisdom in the lawgiver? How depict the invisible? How picture the inconceivable? How give expression to the limitless, the immeasurable, the invisible? How give a form to immensity? How paint immortality? How localize mystery? It is clear that when you contemplate God, who is a pure spirit, becoming man for your sake, you will be able to clothe him with the human form. When the invisible one becomes visible to flesh, you may then draw a likeness of his form. When he who is a pure spirit without form or limit, immeasurable in the boundlessness of his own nature, existing as God, takes upon himself the form of a servant, in substance and in stature, and a body of flesh, then you may draw his likeness and show it to anyone willing to contemplate it. Depict his ineffable condescension, his virginal birth, his baptism in the Jordan, his transfiguration on the Tabor, his all-powerful sufferings, his death and miracles, the proof of his Godhead, the deeds which he worked in the flesh through divine power, his saving cross, his sepulchre, and resurrection, and ascent into heaven. Give to it all the endurance of engraving and color. Have no fear or anxiety. Worship is not all of the same kind. Abraham worshipped the sons of Imor, 
impious men in ignorance of God when he sought the double cave for a tomb. Jacob worshipped his brother Esau and Pharaoh, the Egyptian, but on the point of his staff. He worshipped, he did not adore. Josu and Daniel worshipped an angel of God. They did not adore him. The worship of Latria is one thing, and the worship which is given to merit another. Now, as we are talking of images and worship, let us analyze the exact meaning of each. An image is a likeness of the original with a certain difference, for it is not an exact reproduction of the original. Thus, the Son is the living, substantial, unchangeable image of the invisible God, bearing in himself the whole Father, being in all things equal to him, differing only in being begotten by the Father, who is the begetter, the Son is begotten. The Father does not proceed from the Son, but the Son from the Father. It is through the Son, though not after him, that he is what he is, the Father who generates. In God, too, there are representations and images of his future acts, that is to say, his counsel from all eternity, which is ever unchangeable. That which is divine is immutable. There is no change in him, no shadow of change. Blessed Dennis, who has made divine things in God's presence is study, says that these representations and images are marked out beforehand. In his counsels, God has noted and settled all that he would do, the unchanging future events before they came to pass. Skipping down a little bit, here is a section on worship. Uh, we've already seen a bit of the distinction between Latria and other forms of veneration that John of Damascus makes. Here's another part of that. Worship is the symbol of veneration and honor. Let us understand that there are different degrees of worship. First of all, the worship of Latria, which we show to God, who alone by nature is worthy of worship. When, for the sake of God, who is worshipful by nature, we honor his saints and servants, as Josu and Daniel worshiping an angel, and David his holy places, and when he says, Let us go to the place where his feet have stood. Again, in his tabernacles, as when all the people of Israel adored in the tent, and standing round the temple in Jerusalem, fixing their gaze upon it from all sides, and worshiping from that day to this, or in the rulers established by him, as Jacob rendered homage to Esau, his elder brother, and to Pharaoh, the divinely established ruler. Joseph was worshipped by his brothers. I am aware that worship was based on honor, as in the case of Abraham and the sons of Amor. Either then, do away with worship, or receive it altogether according to its proper measure. Answer me this question. Is there only one God? You answer, yes, there is only one lawgiver. Why then does he command contrary things? The cherubim are not outside of creation. Why then does he allow cherubim carved by the hand of man to overshadow the mercy seat? Is it not evident that as it is impossible to make an image of God who is uncircumscribed and impassable, or of one like to God, creation should not be worshipped as God? He allows the image of the cherubim who are circumscribed and prostrate in adoration before the divine throne to be made and thus prostrate to overshadow the mercy seat. It was fitting that the image of the heavenly choir should overshadow the divine mysteries. Would you say that the ark and staff and mercy seat were not made? 
Are they not produced by the hand of man? Are they not due to what you call contemptible matter? What was the tabernacle itself? Was it not an image? Was it not a type and a figure? Hence the holy apostles' words concerning the observances of the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As it was answered to Moses when he was to finish the tabernacle, See that thou make all things according to the pattern which was shown thee on the mount. But the law was not an image. It shrouded the image. In the words of the same apostle, The law contains the shadow of the good things to come, not the image of those things. For if the law should forbid images, and yet it be itself a forerunner of images, what should we say? If the tabernacle was a figure and the type of a type, why does the law not prohibit image-making? But this is not in the least sense. But this is not in the least the case. There is a time for everything. Of old... God, the incorporeal and uncircumscribed, was never depicted. Now, however, when God is seen, clothed in flesh, conversing with men, I make an image of the God whom I see. I do not worship matter. I worship the God of matter, who became matter for my sake, and designed to inhabit matter, who worked out my salvation through matter. I will not cease from honoring that matter which works my salvation. I venerate it, though not as God. How could God be born out of lifeless things? And if God's body is God by union, it is immutable. The nature of God remains the same as before. The flesh created in time is quickened by a logical and reasoning soul. I honor all matter besides and venerate it. Through it, filled as it were, with the divine power and grace, my salvation has come to me. Was not the thrice happy and thrice blessed wood of the cross matter? Was not the sacred and holy mountain of Calvary matter? What of the life-giving rock, the holy sepulchre, the source of our resurrection? Was it not matter? Is not the most holy book of the Gospels matter? Is not the blessed table matter which gives us the bread of life are not the gold and silver matter out of which the crosses and altar plate and chalices are made? And before all these things is not the body and blood of our Lord matter. Either do away with the veneration and worship due to all these things or submit to the tradition of the church in the worship of images, honoring God and his friends, and following in this the grace of the Holy Spirit. Do not despise matter, for it is not despicable. Nothing is that which God has made. Now to a section on the um, veneration of saints through images. But the adversary says, Make an image of Christ or of his mother who bore him, and let that be sufficient. Oh, what folly this is. On your own showing you are absolutely against the saints. For if you make an image of Christ and not of the saints, it is evident that you do not disown images, but just the honor of the saints. You make statues of Christ as of one glorified, or glorified, while you yet reject the saints as unworthy of honor and call truth a falsehood. I live, says the Lord, and I will glorify those who glorify me and the divine apostle. Therefore now he is not a servant, but a son, and if a son, an heir also through God. And again, if we suffer with him, 
that we may also be glorified. You are not waging war against images, but against the saints. St. John, who rested on his breast, says that we shall be like to him, just as a man by contact with fire becomes fire, not by nature, but by contact and by burning and by participation. So is it, I apprehend, with the flesh of the crucified Son of God. That flesh, by participation through union with the divine nature, was unchangeably God, not in virtue of grace from God, as was the case with each of the prophets, but by the presence of the fountainhead himself. <clears throat> God, the scripture says, stood in the synagogue of the gods, so that the saints too are gods. Holy Gregory takes the words, God stands in the midst of the gods, to mean that he discriminates their several merits. The saints in their lifetime were filled with the Holy Spirit, and when they are no more, his grace abides with their spirits, and with their bodies and their tombs, and also with their likenesses and holy images, not by nature, but by grace and divine power. <clears throat> God charged David to build him a temple through his son, and to prepare a place of rest. Solomon, in building the temple, made the cherubim, as the book of Kings says, and he encompassed the cherubim with gold and all the walls in a circle. And he had the cherubim carved in palms inside and out in a circle, not from the sides, be it observed. And there were bulls and lions and pomegranates. Is it not more seemly to decorate all the walls of the Lord's house with holy forms and images rather than with beasts and plants? Or is the law declaring thou shalt not make any graven image? But Solomon, receiving the gift of wisdom, imaging heaven, made the cherubim and the likenesses of bulls and lions which the law forbade. Now if we make a statue of Christ and likenesses of the saints, does not their being filled with the Holy Ghost increase the piety of our homage? And then the people in the temple were purified in blood and in burnt offerings. So now the blood of Christ, giving testimony under Pontius Pilate, and being himself on the fruits of the martyrs, the church is built up upon the blood of the saints. Then the sign and forms of lifeless animals figured, forth, figured forth the human tabernacle, the martyrs themselves whom they were preparing God's abode. We depict Christ as Lord and as King, and do not deprive him of his army. The saints constitute the Lord's army. Let the, earth king, let the earthly king dismiss his army before he gives up his King and Lord. Later down on this same page, uh, John of Damascus says this, You who refuse to worship images would not worship the Son of God, the living image of the invisible God, and his unchanging form. I worship the image of Christ as the incarnate God, that of Our Lady, the mother of us all, as the mother of God's Son, that of the saints as the friends of God. They have withstood sin unto blood and followed Christ in the shedding of their blood for him who shed his blood for them. Let's see. Let me read one more paragraph and then we'll finish up. Of old they who did not know God, worshipping false gods, worshipped false gods. But now, knowing God, or rather being known by him, how can we return to barren naked rudiments? I have looked upon the human form of God, and my soul has been saved. 
I gaze upon the image of God as Jacob did, though in a different way. Jacob sounded the note of the future, seeing with immaterial sight, whilst the image of him who is visible to flesh is burnt into my soul. The shadow and winding sheet and relics of the apostles cured sicknesses and put demons to flight. How then shall not the shadow and the statues of the saints be glorified? Either do away with the worship of all matter, or be not an innovator. Do not disturb the boundaries of centuries put up by your fathers. And then, later in this section, John of Damascus lists proofs from the fathers that they uh, themselves uh, loved the veneration of images and of Christ through images. So that gives a good kind of little basis for uh, John of Damascus's arguments for the veneration of images um, and the veneration of saints and of Christ and of the Theotokos through images.